my name is Eric, and I welcome you to our Black Gay Diaspora podcast, where we, as LGBTQ plus citizens, come together to inspire and educate each other on who we are and our respective countries and professions. Through topics and guest interviews, our Black Gay Diaspora podcast celebrates individuals making a difference. Loving who we love is not a choice. Being who we're meant to be can be. We are here. You are welcome. We are community. Greetings and welcome to Our Black Gay Diaspora Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Taylor Woodby. Today, I am excited to be joined by Giuliani Taveras. Giuliani is an American playwright, artist, and facilitator. Their plays include S-Y-Z-Y-G-Y, or The Ceasing of the Sun, Y-A-E-L-I-S, The Anatomy of Light, and the upcoming 2023 fall production of Moros, Mickle White, and The Tangerine Dress, which will premiere at the Children's Theater Company in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Juliana is a, quote, storyteller from Ayiti, Bohio, Dominican Republic, by way of Lena P. Hoking, New York City. Their work centers around the lives of the Afro-Indigenous and queer trans diasporas. Giuliani accomplishes this through playwriting, screenwriting, poetry, photography, graphic design, and teaching artistry. And I like this one, Kenship. <laughs> I look forward to learning more about their journey and how they use their talents and experiences to celebrate the past of those making a difference. Hey, Giuliani, and welcome. How are you? Thank you. Thank you for having me. I am pretty well. Yeah, I'm a little bouncing off the walls today from, you know, when you don't sleep enough and then your body's trying to overcompensate. So count for that, excuse me for that energy, but I'm going to try to channel it because I'm super excited to get to be here um, and talk with you. Thank you for the great intro. Uh, how do you say your name? Because I'm not sure if I said it correctly. <laughs> yeah, no, that was great. I mean, I say Giuliani Tavares. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And are you based in Minnesota? No, I'm actually uh, based in New York, which is where I'm from. Ah, I see. Okay. I'm actually here right now. I have been visiting family. I've been outside of the U.S. this time for about a year and a couple months, but I returned to the U.S. uh, on the 7th of this month, September, and it just works out coming through New York because I have family here. Oh, awesome. Well, yes, we're in the same place. (laughs) I hope you're having a good day. What part of New York are you in? I'm in Harlem. I know I mentioned in the intro Dominican Republic, but can you share with us your cultural heritage? Yes. So my parents are both from Dominican Republic. They were born there and immigrated here in their early 20s, in the 90s. My older sister was actually born there as well. So I was the first one sort of in our immediate family that was born here in New York. And my mom is the middle of 11, so very big, extended immigrant family that sort of made that trip over here, which I, you know, feel very lucky to have grown up in. I have been lucky to be able to go back a lot, or I guess not go back since I wasn't born there, but to go and forge a relationship there many times over the years. You know, the Dominican Republic has a really rich and intense history. Um, You know, I, I talk a lot about in you know my life and in my work in whatever ways it comes up this sort of liberation from the large colonial project of the last few centuries and you know the Dominican Republic was the what it's known now right I like to also you know like you read refer to places as their indigenous names and, and their indigenous relationships whenever I can and whenever mm-hmm. you know get into that information so 
yeah, also the beautiful island of Aiti. And shout out also to the Haitian neighbors in DR and, and that history. And I think, yeah, it's a really intense history, I think, because it's the first point of contact for a lot of the European colonizers. And there's still a lot that I'm always looking to learn and connect with about that history and honoring its, you know, West African and Caribbean indigenous roots, in addition to sort of what the European arrival and presence meant for for those places. And so that's all part of sort of my lineages and things I'm always sort of contending with, you know, um, in my family, in my work, in my own spiritual practice, um, and sort of constant learning and growing. So yeah, that's like a quick little <laughs> thing, thing, things I'm always just thinking about casually <laughs> in my head when I'm thinking about, you know, um, yeah, what I carry with me when I move through the world. Yeah. I like that you referenced the indigenous name of the area. You're actually the second person to do that. I interviewed Byron Adu, who's from Australia, and he does the same with the indigenous names for the Australian people that were there when the Europeans arrived. It's an ongoing practice, too, and I think it's just one of many ways that we can, yeah, really keep that history alive and really keep that conversation open um, because, you know, part of colonialism and, and any sort of genocidal project is also this sort of erasure of, of language and this erasure of history. And, and you said something about like the diversity of the culture of Dominican Republic, the heritage, which I think is important to highlight here in the States, we're very binary with quote unquote race or even culture. And myself spending most of the last four years outside of the U.S., most recently in Cape Town, South Africa, it challenged my concept of how much race is a social construct because how people were telling me they saw me was not how I saw myself because I grew up here. And But in some ways, it seems similar to what you're referencing as far as the Dominican Republic is it opened up the dialogue that at least here in the States, the quote unquote black American, when you dig beneath the surface, a lot of times it is more diverse because of slavery and, and unions forced and otherwise that crossed back and forth. So, yeah. Yeah. I appreciate what you're sharing about that sort of out of the U.S. experience. You know, I've been only out of the U.S. a handful of times, but it definitely does do that where like, you know, any sort of thing that you get a little bit of distance from, you can see from a different angle. And that history is really intense and, and really heavy that has to be contended with here. So I think, yeah, I try my best in conversing with folks both from the U.S. and elsewhere to hold all the nuances of what that is. While also, yeah, acknowledging just this, the, the horrors that are part of that history with the transatlantic slave trade, right? Which is not just the U.S., right? That slave trade was in the whole, all the Americas, right? What we now call, again call the Americas. So, yeah, I think it's really interesting. I think um, I try to also honor and sort of account for how the privileges that come with my own ambiguity racially, while also, yeah, doing that work to be like, what does that mean? And, and what is my story? And what is, you know, my lineage that I'm carrying? But yeah, then trying to account for like where violence played a role in that um, and also where agency and resistance and, and culture and beautiful things played a part in that. You know, growing up in the city, I was very much like growing up around other immigrants as well and sort of was just like, yeah, this is what the world is. And then I went to college and was like, whoa, I feel different. Um, you know, going to a predominantly white institution was kind of what I refer to as my first time really feeling racialized. And I remember that's when I was coming into really wanting to 
ask these questions about my own heritage and my own backstory because I, I was, yeah, I was kind of like, well, when you feel that clash of like, like you described what you're being perceived as versus how you have been moving up until that point. And I think that's a really complicated part of like identity and, and collective identity is that it is shaped both by like our internal experience and sort of how we're being perceived and moving through things socially. So yeah, I remember being like, huh, I have questions now. <laughs> like, yeah, what am I? Who am I? What box am I supposed to check? You know? <laughs> Speaking of education, what is your educational background? Yeah, I went to uh, Vassar College after high school and that was in like upstate New York, you know, in the city we call anything that's outside of <laughs> past Yonkers, we call it upstate. So it was only a couple hours north of New York. And then I did a creative writing MFA where I focused on playwriting in Brooklyn here in the city. I originally thought I was going to like keep going through the sort of academic institutions when I was younger because I just liked learning and studying and that was something I enjoyed school. I was one of those people. Yeah, I also learned the again the histories and the critiques and nuances of these institutions as I was going through them and I found that actually a lot of my craving for learning and community I could find in other places and so when I became a teaching artist in the city where I was you know going to a bunch of different schools and programs throughout the week all over the city and I was getting to work with other teaching artists and young people doing original theater making and poetry and improv I was like, oh, this is still, this is where I'm getting, this is where I'm getting that creative energy, that structure, that community where I'm learning new skills. But yeah, so then after my MFA, I really um, was just really enjoying my teaching artist work and um, yeah, being kind of, yeah, on the other side and being an educator and being able to provide and support programs that I wish I had had as a young person. And I haven't been teaching since the pandemic hit, which I miss a lot, you know, but I'm going to find my way back to it in some way. I kind of trust that. But that's been my path a little bit so far. Well, I mean, it sounds like you're busy at the moment because your stage adaptation of is it Christine Baldacino's 2014 children's book, Morris Micklewhite and the Tangerine Dress. Can you share with us about the project? Yes, yes. I've been very blessed with uh, some amazing projects and collaborations since my teaching work sort of shifted into more playwriting and screenwriting focus. And Morris McWhite and Dress is my latest wonderful endeavor with the Children's Theater Company in Minneapolis. I've also been working with the Chicago Children's Theater and the Rose Theater in Omaha. So just going to shout those out because hopefully this show will be gracing their stages soon as well. But the first production will be in Minneapolis at the Children's Theater Company yeah, it's based on this gorgeous book by Christine and Isabel called Morris Micklewhite and the Tangerine Dress. And the thing I love about children's books, it's so gorgeous to see the range of stories that are being shared for young children today. And this book in particular is about Morris, who's just just a kid. I like to say he's just a kid who's vibing. He likes school just like I did. You know, he likes painting, puzzles, apple juice. He's got a really sweet mom who just is so great at being present with him, which I think is one of the big, you know, offerings you can give a child as an adult. He loves school until he starts to not love it a little bit because he's not getting the the nicest sort of treatment from his peers just because he really likes this orange shimmering, cool sounding fabric that, you know, I, I sometimes I like to say happens to take the shape of a dress, you know, and he likes how it moves and how it sounds and the colors remind him of his mom and tigers and sunsets and all these gorgeous things. 
from this very imaginative young perspective. And so the story is about him sort of encountering this gorgeous thing, enjoying it, and then getting pushbacks for that simple experience of taking pleasure in in something like that. You know, children's books, they're, they're, they're quite short. They're very powerful. They're, they're very beautifully illustrated often, and, and they're short, but they carry a lot. And I think the beauty of adapting it for the stage has been getting to sort of take a little more time with each moment in the book and expand it further, breathe some life into it through more dialogue and like this three-dimensional live theater space. So I'm super excited for us to have some audiences soon. It's starting to feel real. <laughs> And it debuts next month in October. Yes. Yeah, I hope that the folks that can make it out there to see it uh, receive something as wonderful as I think a lot of us have received just getting to work on it and put it together. Is this your first time adapting a children's book to theater? Yes, it is my first time adapting it for the stage. Funnily enough, it is not my first time adapting a children's book. You know, if you had told me five, 10 years ago, oh yeah, you're going to be out here just left and right working with children's book and the transport and be like, okay, cool, sure. <laughs> um, I would like to say like, if this is my niche, I'm into it. I also have adapted a children's book for a full length animated film. So it's been really cool to have those like kind of different, but similar experiences. What would you say is in your makeup creatively or personally that makes it possible that you can be the one that can do this? Oh, yeah. You know, I love that question. I'm not sure. I I would be curious to ask folks who have brought me into these projects what drew me to them. But I think if I'm looking at myself for it, I think my previous work, right, my original work that I've sort of been building and exploring throughout the last 10, 15 years of writing often has centered young people and young characters and young perspectives. My very first full-length play that I wrote when I was in college. It was called The Anatomy of Light, and it was set in Coney Island. Like, I just say, I grew up at Coney Island. Like, we were always there. (laughs) And, you know, they say, write what you know. So I was like, cool, my first try at this, I'm going to write about Coney Island. And the main character of that play is a young boy. I think that comes from also my teaching work and just really valuing the perspectives of children and young people and feeling like it's important to support and amplify that because I think our larger culture, while it sort of glorifies youth, it doesn't actually, I think, support the agency and wisdom and perspective of young people in the way that I think we should, you know? And I think the same can be said if you swing the other way, right? For elders, I think there's this sort of following way that happens for the younger or older you are, you know, like they, I think there's a marginalization that happens there intergenerational conversation is part of what keeps our histories alive, part of what keeps, I think, the human experience in conversation with itself. And so not try to control them or shape them, right, but rather help cultivate them into what they want to be and are meant to become. So I feel pretty strongly about that. So I think maybe that's part of my spirit that has gotten me on this path. I like the way you put that. I just zero in on pop culture and the way you describe it is so beautiful because that, ex- I would say, at least in my own frame of reference, when I was young, I wanted to be an adult. And then you get up to the age of 30 and then it's like, oh my God, I'm getting old. Not realizing that period of time that is most popular in pop culture is such a short period in one's life, if you're fortunate. 
And so, yeah, I just really like the way you put that. It's true. And, you know, I think when we're young, we aspire to adulthood because we're told that's when we'll have agency over our own lives, which I don't think is a great (laughs) model. You know, I think um, this is part of why I'm really big on how can I show up for young people and support their agency rather than try to control them. I read Theater of the Oppressed, which is based on the pedagogy of the oppressed and thinking about disrupting this idea that teaching is this one-way thing, right? You know, this idea of like the banking model of education, where in that model for school, we see kids as just like little piggy banks to fill with information. When I think really, and in a lot of our like Afro-Indigenous histories too, it's like that's, we're thinking about circles, we're thinking about collectivity and young people have their own wisdom to share with us already, right? And it's it's actually a mutual relationship. And so I think that's part of how we end up wanting to like grow up so fast, right? Is because we're being told left and right that we can't do anything, you know, that we actually want to do. We can't actually exercise our agency and make choices for ourselves until we're older. Right. But then like you said, we get there and then suddenly there's all these other rules. So actually they're just scamming us. You know what I'm saying? They're scamming us, Eric, because it's like you're just always telling us there's gonna be a different set of rules no matter what time we end up at. And I'm all about trying to bust out of those. (laughs) I interviewed him not too long ago, Anton Craigwell. He's based here in New York and he's uh, part of the Ancestral Institute. And something you just said about Afro-Indigenous, I'll forward you his information, but I know he's got an event that's coming up, a conference next month, and I'll forward that link to you. But a lot of, I know the speakers touch on that, the importance of intellectual individuals who incorporate things that have always been good for us, but because of whatever modern society, we've forgotten about them for a long time. And now we're starting to reintroduce those back into our lives. Yeah, I think it's an important sort of movement that I do see happening that I think is great. And I shouldn't say one single movement, because I think all change that happens for us is multiple movements, kind of like all the currents in our oceans, you know, but I think a lot of us are looking around and like, oh, we've we've, uh, lost touch a little bit. We've been disconnected a little bit from this planet and from, you know, what was thousands and thousands of years of a certain sort of more indigenous land-based relationship to our planet. Yeah. Um, You know, since you've been a playwright, since you've been contributing to the artistic landscape, what ways have you seen it evolve in a positive way? You know, it's interesting because I feel really lucky to like suddenly have writing be my job. I say suddenly, it's been a couple years, but I it felt sudden. Even when I was writing plays, it was kind of just when I started writing them, it was this sort of like, oh, I just really like this. And it's a great way for me to like process these big questions I'm carrying around in the world. And so it still feels really like new to me almost to be like, oh, yes, it's like a title, like I'm a playwright or I'm a screenwriter. I appreciate the question because I don't know, we sort of reflect on myself as being, you know, part of this larger landscape, but it is what we're doing when we're sharing art with the world. So I love how you phrased that. It sounds so simple, but it's like something I think about is when we're creating from a marginalized, you know, place, right? And I say that to mean like any sort of peoples that are on the margins of this dominant culture. And I think we're creating from those margins, even though I like to be like, I'm not, and my life is not the margins. Whose margins are these? Is I'm at the center. My people are at the center of my life. Um, I was, yeah, I I would say whose margins, but the dominant culture's margins has put some of us in these places. And I feel like there's this pressure that can come with that where, because there's less stories of our, you know, whatever our peoples are, I say our peoples to be whatever, you know, diasporas we're a part of or cultures we're sort of a part of that you feel like you have to do it perfectly it carries the weight, right? It carries the burden of like, it has to represent 
you know, whatever that experience is, right? If I'm writing from a queer trans Dominican American New Yorker person, like I'm suddenly like I have to represent all those people well, you know, like I think that comes from this place of not having enough of our stories represented over time. And so then the less that there are, the more burden that each one seems to carry. Just because you have one Caribbean story or one queer story doesn't mean that you, you covered that base. Okay, you're good to go back to the regular scheduled programming, you know? So I'm excited to see that there's slowly, I feel like that's opening up. And it's like, oh, there's actually so many different stories from any place, even a place as small as one of our islands. You know, it's like there's over half a million, you know, Dominican Americans in New York City, you know? And so I definitely shouldn't be the only one being to the experience. And, you know, with queer and transness, too, it's like the whole point, I think, of that is that there's a million ways or eight billion, if you're thinking about how many people we've got walking around to be and to relate to the world and to express ourselves. If it's OK, how do you identify under our our beautiful umbrella? <laughs> I have always sort of been one of those people that like struggles with labels in terms of finding them useful. I definitely support anyone's use of particular labels because I think language is whatever we need it to be but I've always been like I don't need them I don't need them no that's you're boxing me in I change every day and I think that's still kind of where I'm at so I feel like the terms I resonate with most are queer or trans as sort of these umbrella terms that show me like political alignment and community alignment I also use two spirits sort of in honor also of thinking about that sort of disrupting colonial gender binary I use gender queer, agender, gender fluid to describe my gender experience as well. Again, sort of just for me, language is is helpful to specify and also helpful to sort of disrupt and and um, shake up these sort of like binaries and boxes that at the end of the day don't always serve us. Thank you for sharing that and sharing that and also in your adaptation of the story of Morris. I like now that we're having these discussions about the many ways that we could present using maybe the word gender. I don't know if that's the right way to put it, but I think of myself, like that particular story of Morris. My brother was born when I was six and a half, found this book at the library, and it just was about a boy who was knew his mom was having a girl. I remember when I checked that book out at the library and I brought it home and how I was chastised because it was a book that had all this pink in it. But me as a little boy, I didn't think of it that way. And and something you said about like Morris loved the colors and vibrant, I think something about tigers or something like that you mentioned and how children in a lot of ways have the answer. We just kind of muddy it up. Yes, exactly. And I think that's part of their wisdom that I say. It's like, sure, we might know more than a kid about like taxes, you know, about the social (laughs) and that even I'm like, don't don't ask me. But but I feel like. (laughs) You know, what children are so close to, you know, being closer to that moment of birth, closer to that sort of new eyed, miraculous arrival, right? Because we're all like, no, we don't, no one really knows why we show up, how we're here. You know, we can study it, we can think, philosophize, and it's that great mystery and that great miracle. And children are so close to that. I love talking about that part of, of Morris Micklewhite and this tangerine dress in the book. He's a redhead and his mom's a redhead, and, and he loves animals and he has little tiger toys and he loves painting and color and so when he sees this dress he's not thinking right just like you weren't thinking about like oh in this social setup currently pink it represents this and that's what I'm you know you're just like oh beautiful like you're just like there's a story there's a color uh you know bees aren't like I'm not gonna pollinate that one because <laughs> I'm a boy bee you know like it's just I look to nature all the time because I'm like when you really step back and look at the natural world the non-human world right because we are part of the natural world but 
I think you feel the, the foolishness of humanity sometimes. And so I love that Morris in this book and in our adaptation up to the stage as well is like, that's what he's drawn to. He's drawn to the sensory experience of the dress. I think we're just kind of here to experience and learn and marvel at this world that we're born into. And that's what children are, are so rooted in, right? They're so present. And yeah, that's all it is to Morris. And, you know, that's not to say that I don't think we can talk about the book in regards to terms like gender and, you know, talk about the political landscape and things like that. I think that's important too. But something I love about it and something that I think is important, you know, when looking at the story and connecting with young audiences, it's like, at the end of the day, it's not about that. (laughs) At the end of the day, it's about just enjoying this life and and peeling away all this like, yeah, socialized um, meaning that can, like you said, really muddy things ultimately. And it's not, it's not always helpful. I like you said closer to birth, which for me captures the miracle of life, the miracle of discovery, especially in those first few years of living. So I just became a Titi. I love it. I was, I always say I was born to be a Titi. My older sister had uh, her first child oh, just almost a year ago. This is my sweet baby Isla is about to turn one. And it has been such a pleasure, right? It's like the first time in a, in a while that I've been around like a baby, right? Like an infant and now slowly becoming a toddler. I cherish it. And I think the same thing when we're talking about elders, right? Elders are then closer to death, which is the other side of the cycle. And so there's just deep wisdom that I think happens at both of those places. Uh, for yourself, we've talked about where you're at today, but who are you coming up? Like, when did you discover specifically your gift for creating? Oh, one thing I like to do is definitely disrupt this like idea that exists in some places of like the genius, the soul art, you know, the artist who's self-made. Anyone who says they're self-made, I'm like, that's rude to whoever helped make you because none of us do it alone, you know? So that's so part of where I like to start is being like, yes, yeah, shout out to all these people. So shout out to all the ancestors who made it possible for me to be here. And also to PBS Kids, which I grew up watching obsessively, you know? And shout out to beautifully made public television and the public library and my mom for taking me there all the time. And my aunt for giving me her old IBM laptop that she didn't need anymore when I was like 10 or 11. So I could start typing up all my silly little stories. And I had really supportive English teachers as well in my public school. So I'm really grateful for all of that. But I think, yeah, my mom always says like, well, it's because when I was pregnant with you, I went to the library all the time and I read to you all the time. (laughs) And so I'm like, you know what? I believe you, mom. Thank you. I will give you that credit. As soon as I could read, it was like I never stopped, you know. And so I think it's just always been a way for me to, yeah, to express myself, to imagine myself in other situations. Yeah, I think we all have that capacity for creation and creativity. I think we have to be able to imagine the worlds we want. And it makes me think those are templates for where we're at today and, and where we can go especially in the last few years, is that art of what, we, what is created is what the generations ahead of us are going to find and say, oh, this is what they were like, which for me zeroes in on the importance of the arts, on the importance of creativity. Yes, I love that. I think of it as like archival work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we started our conversation thinking about history and loving history and being in conversation with history and say, like, oh, right, we are making that history. It is a really profound thing to actually 
I think, connect with. And it's what grounds me because sometimes, you know, it's easy to get lost in the shuffle if you're extra busy or right when it becomes your job and suddenly it's got all these logistics to it. So sometimes when I kind of get lost in the sauce, that's part of what helps ground me is like, you know, who am I doing this for? I'm doing it for my present self, right? Because I think art has such a power just in the process of being made. I think, you know, with theater making and even just writing too, when we talk about like journaling is good for you, like all these things, it's because there's something powerful about the process itself. And like you're saying, then whatever we create and share with the world becomes the archive for those to come after us. And those things are both really grounding for me. We're future ancestors. So what ancestors are we trying to be? And that I think applies to our, our art making for sure. Is like, what stories do I want to capture and make sure they don't get lost in the frenzy of human life and change and modern society? And what do I want to yeah, pass on being able to offer that to those to come? It's always going to be part of the human experience because we are created and then we want to create. Like, I think it's the cycle. Yeah. <laughs> To find ways to represent ourselves, yeah. I like future ancestor. That's a wow. That's a, I could. I felt that, yeah. You know, I'm from Arizona. I have family here in New York. One of the things I love about New York is how culturally diverse and rich it is. Specifically, with you being of Dominican background, when did you become aware of that part of who you are and, and how rich that culture is? So like I mentioned, I have this really large extended family because my mom is the middle of 11 and my dad has several siblings as well. And so I grew up just like, that's just what I knew. I was like, yep, when we meet up for some good food, it's going to be 75 of us and the food is going to be banging and like, it's going to be great. And like when you're a kid, you're not, yeah, you're not contextualizing that. You're just like, this is what I know. This is what my life is. Because there were different cultures around me, it was like an awareness of like, oh, we all have a different thing, but like that's that's just cool. That's just what it is. Um, and like, you know, like I mentioned, it wasn't until I went to predominantly white college that I was really thinking about that context. But even I use like, I think I referenced like when I was in high school, my sort of little cluster of nerdy, <laughs> like school loving friends, we were literally every single person in that little cluster had parents from a different country. And so we connected over having immigrant parents and being part of these diasporas, you're just navigating difference so seamlessly because it's all around you. I literally was in high school during Obama's first term. And so it was that energy of like, racism is over. Yay. <laughs> like, no, you know, I don't see color. And it's like, no. So there's a downside to that too, where I think because that was the energy and because I went to such like diverse schools, they're like, oh, that means everything's fine because everyone's different. And it's like, no, there was still very much discrimination and anti-blackness and these things that were happening even within places that had a lot of people but you know the big Dominican neighborhood in New York City is Washington Heights but that's not where I grew up I grew up in Brooklyn and then in Yonkers outside the Bronx because my dad had a deli in the Bronx and that's part of you know then what I get to put into my stories is like oh right not everyone knows what it's like to grow up like this not everyone has met a Dominican or a Caribbean person or you know these things so it's like that's part of getting to share those stories is like, well, here's a little bit of that world from our perspective and not from an outsider's perspective. Yeah. I oof, Yeah. From, from the insider's perspective. Yeah. Yeah. I just have to summer with that. <laughs> mm -hmm. Cause yeah, those uh, I've been asked for this platform, why it, it's needed or why there is a focus. And it's like, well, there is some content that is written about the different ways that we represent within the diaspora. But we still need the creatives like you who are coming from a first-person place for its authenticity, but also 
for the emotional part of it too. Exactly. I think it's an important thing to emphasize, you know, which is not to say, oh, you cannot write about something that you have not experienced firsthand. You know, people get to get a little dogmatic about that and be like, oh, so you're saying I can never write about X, Y, Z. And it's like, first of all, don't project, listen to the, what we're saying, you know, like we're just saying that, especially when we're looking at history and we're contextualizing and we're seeing that there's been a purposeful repression or absence of stories from these perspectives that we grow up in it should be us who gets to tell them, right? Like that is how we get to have, right? Coming back to our agency, our sovereignty, having power, our, our personal power and our community's power to get to archive and shape our own story, I think is just crucial. It's a non-negotiable. It's a non-negotiable. I don't want to be the only one either. If there's a room of 20 of us and you put me in there and then you say, we're good. I'm like, no, nah, I don't like that. <laughs> I don't like that. I don't like those numbers either. So it's like, it gets, it gets even more specific, but yeah, the baseline is like, let us not even let us, right. I don't think we should be having to ask permission or be included at the table. It's like, we have our own table. Just let us vibe. <laughs> With the upcoming production of Morris Micklewhite, I know some of the technical things that you're having to make sure are, being worked out leading up to the premiere, but for yourself, how are you preparing for this for this debut? Oh, I love that question. Thank you, because I don't know if I've really thought about that, and, and now I can sit with that even after this conversation. Because yeah, you get caught up in the like, is everything in order? You know, do we house tech going? You'll know, be chatting with the director of the show tomorrow to see how things are going because I was there for the start of rehearsals, but I'm back in New York now, and then I'll be flying back to Minneapolis for tech week and opening. So I've been thinking about all that stuff, but I'm like, oh yeah, like also this is a big moment. It's like actually my first time getting commissioned for a theatrical piece. And the Children's Theater Company is a wonderful theater with a rich history um, and very like widely renowned. So it's an honor too, to be a part of their season. I appreciate conversations, like getting to have these conversations leading up to it. Mm to spread the word about it and reflect on it. Cause yeah, it does help me really sort of like think about the whole path to get here and what it means to me to be able to be a part of this process and be a part of sharing this story with young people. So I guess I'm just sort of taking a breath, right? Cause also I feel like now is about time when my writing part is kind of done. Finally, you know, eight drafts in, it's finally like kind of in the hands of the rest of the creative team and I get to sort of take a deep breath and appreciate, you know, how I got here and all these things that we're talking about that make this possible. And then just kind of show up with my whole heart and cheer these kids on and hopefully get to meet some of our audiences. It's kind of all I'm thinking about, you know, I'm wishing that I could bring Isla, my little nibbling. So just preparing, yeah, to go out there and receive it as however it's going to come together. I think I love that about being a playwright is that I get this sort of time in the process to sit with the work by myself, sort of that introvert part, because I'm a kind of very much a mix of the introvert and extrovert if we're using that language. And so I play writing, I get both. I get this time with just me and the script and the words at this little desk right here. And then at some point too, it becomes this more collective collaborative experience. And so I'm enjoying that now. After months of it just being me and Peter at CTC chatting and writing and rewriting, now there's all these other amazing artists involved. And really, I'm just excited. I'm just excited to see then what all of their talent and their perspective adds to the script that I offered and, and how that's going to ultimately take shape on stage is, is going to be super cool to witness. Well, congratulations on that. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. You are a playwright, you're a screenwriter, you're, you know, a graphic designer. But as a somebody who creates the product that, you know, the performers do, have you also directed? Well, I will say I have directed kind of while I'm in school, like smaller things. Before I wrote my first full-length play, I actually just wrote like a short play, like a 10-minute sort of situation, zip it a toe in. And I did direct like that at my college. And I also directed some of my friends' work while I was in school. And I was in the theater ensemble where you kind of got to be involved with every part of the process. You don't audition for a role. You audition to be part of the ensemble. And then you're in the ensemble and you get to sort of collectively tackle each show and you can do some writing, some design, some directing, you know, so that's like kind of my background. So I, I have a great interest and love for it. But because I think because I'm so multi-hyphenate, I like to be do things from all different ways. I haven't really spent time just sort of cultivating directing. Um, and I always say like, oh, I'd love to co-direct because I want, you know, to have an opinion and to help shape the thing. But I also don't want all the responsibility on my shoulders to direct. So it's something I definitely am thinking about though and would be excited to do. And, um, you know, there's a lot of folks who write and direct their own work because there's such a big relationship there. Certainly when I'm writing, when you're writing for the stage, you're thinking about what it looks like to you and, you know, how it feels. And there are places for me in my script writing where I can be a little bit more poetic and metaphorical with stage directions coming from a poetry background. And then also places where I'm like, and this, there's a super long table and it's set at this angle. And then there's this tension that happens, you know, so I think it comes up anyway in the writing process. So it'd be something I'd be super excited to cultivate more, I think, um, because it is sort of just that, that larger vision. I look forward to what the future holds for you. It's the gift of staying connected through social media. Screenwriting, are you working on or have you, or do you have goals of something being debuted on the screen? Well, there is one thing I can share right now, which I'm super excited about, which is, I had mentioned it previously, it was a little seed planted, was that other children's book that I adapted. That children's book is called Julian is a Mermaid, gorgeous book by Jessica Love. I cannot get over that I got to be the one to adapt that for the screen because I knew about the book before I was reached out to about the opportunity because a friend had nannied a kid named Julian and then had hit me up being like, you have to read this book. Like, I know we're fully grown adults, but you have to get the children's book and you have to read it because it's like basically your life. It's like your name. It's like Brooklyn. It's Coney Island. It's the Mermaid Parade. It's, you know, this Caribbean family. And I was like, what? And so it's an amazing book that I love that exists in the world. And I was so blessed as to have been the one to write the screenplay for the animated full-length feature. And that is in the works right now. So people can't see it yet, but I wanted everyone to know it's coming because, you know, animation takes time. And Cartoon Saloon is the Irish animation studio that is doing the movie and they have stunning work. And that's part of what I love about them is that they're very committed to the vision and doing it in the spirit of that vision and taking their time with it. So it's um, currently being drawn and created and animated after my many drafts. And so that's going to be something folks can catch hopefully around, you know, this time next year. Things that are out right now already are two seasons of With Love on Amazon Prime Video that I had the pleasure of getting to work on both seasons. All these things we're talking about actually like intergenerational, family, queer trans stories, Mexican family with other sort of characters too, with different backgrounds. 
at the center though is is a sibling duo and their larger family and you get to see elders, you know, talking about their experiences and their sex lives and things we never get to see. And I got to write this beautiful stories for a trans non-binary character named Soul. And that was a really great experience. And so I definitely shout out that show on Amazon, which is available to stream. You told me as a kid that I would get to say all this, I'd be like, what? <laughs> so <laughs> super exciting. Wow. Wow. I'll definitely be sharing those when this goes live. Check out the thing on Amazon too. I always end by asking if you have any final thoughts or insights. Thank you so much for these questions and this conversation. And I just feel so comfortable in this space and appreciate, like you said, that there's a million great reasons for us to create our specific dedicated stories as future ancestors, as artists, as humans, you know, processing the world around us. And so I really appreciate that this podcast exists. And thank you for having me as a guest. And yeah, just inviting such brilliant conversation around all these things big and small it's like kind of how I go I'm like we can be talking about one little thing and it's of course going to end up connected to all of human history and, and the philosophy of being alive and so I just had a lot of fun and I think we hit on a lot of great things that um, I feel passionate about so I appreciate the, the space to get to share I don't know if I said it already but thank you to Jonathan White for connecting us yeah when I saw the email and I really liked how he detailed and he gave me links and, and of course for the upcoming performance. So as I was reading through, I was like, yes. Oh my God. Of course. Yes. Yes. Jonathan. Yeah. <laughs> He's out here. <laughs> he is working right now. I love it. I appreciate him a lot. Yeah. So grateful to be connected and yes, yeah, so let's please keep that connection open and stay in touch. Thank you so much. Oh, I forgot to ask, uh, where can we engage with you online? Primarily my website right now. I'm doing a, a sort of break from social media, which I'm loving a lot. So um, I think, you know, my Instagram profile is still up um, in case folks want to use it as a way to get to me. But mostly com is my website and great way to like just see what I'm up to. I try to update it. <laughs> Should probably do that soon. And there's a way to contact me on there if anyone wants to get in touch. So I like to just plug that one mainly. Thank you for spending time with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, comment, and subscribe. Share with your friends, too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Our Black Gay Diaspora and on Twitter at BLK Gay Diaspora. Until next time.